1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very, very much for joining me today. And I'm particularly excited that you're joining me today because I'm really excited to share this book with you. So I just talked with Michael Robinson about his new book, The Lost White Tribe, Explorers, Scientists, and the Theory that Changed a Continent. This came out with Oxford University Press just this year in 2016. And it's a book that, as you'll hear us talking about in a moment, is a page turner. I mean, you you sort of you get to the end of each chapter and you need to start the next one. It's written with such a beautiful attentiveness to the craft of writing that it really, truly is a pleasure to read, as well as being a fascinating account of um, the interweaving of different forms of inquiry and forms of evidence around the life story of a particular hypothesis, a particular idea in the history of science and archaeology and linguistics and physical anthropology and biblical studies and a whole lot more. So what the story does, and you'll, um, you'll kind of hear about this in a moment, it starts us off in the mansion of a particular figure. This is Henry Morton Stanley, who you'll hear about in a moment, who was a very famous explorer who had encountered um, what the book calls the White Race of Gambara Gara. This is something that has largely been forgotten. It makes people uncomfortable. But as the book shows, this idea, this notion of a white race, of Gumbara Gara, this is a mountain in Africa, winds up being the fulcrum Um, around which any number of uh, related and some seemingly unrelated ideas about humanity, um, about genealogy, about human identity, are all constellated in super fascinating ways. So Stanley was going to Africa to find the source of the Nile, and his trip captures the world's attention, and it informs a larger set of questions that animate the book. Where did the human species originate? why had it split into separate races and how had these races come to settle the different regions of the planet now as these questions get explored you'll see that the story touches on um, biblical references it touches on the study of mummies study of skulls, the writing of adventure stories, the dreams of Freud. It's um, by the end of this story, it touches on um, sort of major tribal conflict in the modern world. It touches on issues of repatriation. It touches on uh, the case of the Terra mummies for scholars and listeners and readers who ha- followed that case um, as it played out in China. There's lots of ways that this story um, really animates a number of different fields of inquiry. And so um, with that, it's such a rich book and it's such an interesting, I I think what um, Michael has to say is really, really interesting. Um, I'm going to leave you to it um, and just say thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support of the channel and really, really, really um, go out and get your hands on a copy of this book. You won't be sorry. It's just fabulously interesting. Um, it's so, um, it's such a pleasure to read. You can read this in the bathtub as well as at your desk. And I hope you enjoy that. And I also hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Michael Robinson about his new book, The Lost White Tribe. Welcome to New Books in STS, Michael. And thanks very much both for writing such a superbly written book and I'm not being hyperbolic there it's really a beautiful book it's a page turner of a book of a book and also for making time to talk with me today welcome to the thanks. podcast thanks carla so let's start as is traditional for the channel by talking about what brought you to the field and in short why the history of science what brought you to the history of science
0: Well, uh, you've probably heard this from a lot of your history of science people, but uh, I did not start as a history of science undergrad. Um, I studied biology and philosophy uh, in college and assumed that I would be probably a researcher in a lab, which I did for a couple of years after I finished college and kind of figured out there that uh, the aspect that I most liked about science was not sitting at a, a, a lab uh, bench, but really the process of discovery. So after doing a number of different things, I when I kind of came back to the idea of grad school, I, um, I went to a history of science program uh, because I was just really interested in that. And then um, I also kind of assumed that I'd be looking into late 20th century, uh, Biology—that was the stuff that I found so interesting. But when I went to um, Wisconsin, where I did my uh, grad uh, grad studies, I was with Lynn Nyhart. I was her advisee, and Lynn, as uh, a lot of historians of science probably knows, does nineteenth-century biology. So uh, I tended, tended to veer more towards the nineteenth century than the twentieth, and just kind of fell in love with it, um, particularly the outdoor aspect of it. I. Think I had always associated science as an indoor thing, and um, going to the 19th century, you, you're, you're kind of coming up against all of these amazing stories about people going places and finding things, and uh, and so I just I just fell in love with with that aspect of it.
1: Great. Now the subtitle of the book that we're talking about is Explorers Scientists. And the theory that changed a continent. And we'll talk about um, all of those roles and what all of those components mean in the hour to come. But first, what brought you to this particular focus for this project? And at the same time, how did you decide to write in this way for this kind of audience when you were writing about this uh, topic and shaping this project?
0: (laughs) So on the first question, how I kind of came up with this project, I had uh, in 2006, I published a book called The Coldest Crucible, which was about ar- uh, Arctic exploration and American culture. And that book really kind of traced the arc of um, United States interest in the Arctic as a place and the expeditions that took people to the Arctic to discover various things. Um And so at a a very late point in that project, I started running into this these stories that I really didn't know what to do with. And the one story in particular that I found was, um, one by, a, a Canadian anthropologist explorer by the name of Wilmer Stephenson. Stephenson uh, went, went up to the Arctic in uh, 1912 or uh, 1910 to 1912 and came back reporting that he had found blonde Eskimos. And when I read this, um, It just seemed so uh, completely absurd um, that I had to dig a little further and found that people were completely captivated with the story about Blonde Eskimos. Half of the people who wrote about it seemed to think that uh, Stephenson was completely making it up and this was a fraud. And the other half spent their time trying to figure out, well, where did these white Eskimos come from? Are they Irish? Are they lost Vikings? Are they, you know, the descendants of the Franklin Expedition? I mean, so, uh, but I, I, I really didn't have anything to do with it. So I just kind of tucked it in a file. And um, then over the years, really over the last 10 years, um, I just kept running into more and more of these stories of discoveries of so-called white tribes. So by the time I kind of filled up a couple of file cabinets with stuff about white tribes by about 2008, 2009. I said, you know, I think I have to do something with this. So this book is kind of a reflection of that. Oh, and on on your second question of uh, why did I write it the the way that I did? Do you mean uh, in terms of the number of chapters?
1: So what I mean is that at least from my perspective as one reader, the book very much reads as something that um, can be usefully and productively read both by experts in the field, right? I mean, I. I was completely unaware of this story. And I got I feel like as a kind of professional historian of science, whatever that means, I got a lot out of it. But also, this is something that someone who knows nothing about history, nothing about history of science can pick up can read can enjoy. And so it's it feels to me like the kind of book that's very much um, it feels intended as something that can be read and enjoyed by a very wide, non specialist audience as well. And that's a very particular approach. To writing, And it's a very particular kind of uh, decision to pay attention to that aspect of the craft, right? Transitions between paragraphs, like the, the, that plot arc. I mean, you've clearly thought and worked really hard about that uh, or on that. So that's kind of what I mean, the sort of mm. um, writing it in a way that it reads as if you took the writing of it really, really seriously, which is not always or necessarily often the case for a history book.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, First of all, I I appreciate that it reads that way. Um, The I think the a lot of my experiences in writing this book grew out of writing my first book, which was uh, essentially a a, a revision of my my dissertation, my Ph.D. dissertation. And, um, you know, there's so much, as you know, that we learn in graduate school about writing to a to a particular Discipline mm-hmm. that when we kind of move uh, outside of that or move beyond graduate school into uh, a broader universe of readers and uh, audiences, you know, from undergraduates or graduate students or um, the radio or podcasts or whatever, that you've, uh, you know, you, you're, you find, I found that I was constantly kind of trying to connect to these broader audiences. And um, I think my I've I've had a blog for about six years now, and that that really helped in terms of trying to um, move beyond the 20 or 30 people who do what I do. And I also think uh, just – I, I really kind of care about writing. I, I know that when I'm in a, reading a book and I feel like um, I'm finishing a chapter and there's some really amazing hook at the end of the chapter and I'm like, damn, they did it to me. I have to read the next chapter. And and so this was a kind of experiment, actually, uh, in trying to write that way, to try to write um, – a story that, you know, carries you forward like a bag of Doritos. You just can't, (laughs) you you can't stop. Um, And um, so it was an experiment that way. And uh, so I appreciate that you thought it it worked. Do
1: you have any, or did you have any models in mind of other writers whose style um, was really effective for you in that way that you kind of kept in mind as exemplars?
0: I, I do, you know, I, 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 um, A book that made a a big impact on me uh, before I went to graduate school was Into the Wild by John Krakauer and uh, Into Thin Air. Also, I read a little bit later Um, Sebastian Junger's book. uh, All of these, you know, these are kind of. Uh, Creative nonfiction, I guess, adventure, you could say, if you wanted to put that into a genre. But there's an incredible amount of craft that goes into writing those kinds of books. And what I always admired and, you know, Joseph Ellis actually also in terms of someone within the historical discipline, I think, does a really good job of this. But writing in a way that you have a narrative that's pulling you forward and then in a sense, the author raises questions that cannot be answered by taking the narrative from point a to point b chronologically so they have to take a little uh breather and write an a kind of uh a chapter about whatever subject is is kind of looming i kind of, i almost think of it almost like a christmas tree like you've got You know, from afar, if you look at a Christmas tree, it's like, oh, it's pretty. It kind of goes up and then it comes back down. And as you get closer, you're like, yeah, but you know what's really cool is like all of these little ornaments, you know. And the more that you look at the tree, the more you kind of become fascinated with the ornaments. And so I guess I wanted to write something where I felt we had to kind of go in and occasionally study some of these ornaments and then come back out again and look at the broad broad picture. So, um, it was an attempt to kind of, uh, yeah, to do, to do that in uh, chronological form.
1: Awesome. So let's get right into it. So the introduction opens with an, ac- with an account of reporter David Care in 1885, going to the London mansion of Henry Morton Stanley to interview him. Now, at this point, Stanley, as you tell us um, early on in this chapter, was the world's most famous explorer. He's also absolutely central to the story as we move forward, and he seems like a super- fascinating character. So as a way to kind of launch us into the story, what do we need to understand and what do you think is important for us to understand about Stanley as a person? Mm -hmm. Um, Like, in order to um, kind of lay the groundwork for what's to come with his ideas and his explorations.
0: Stanley uh, was born in Wales. He had a pretty unstable um, adolescence. He was uh, brought up in an orphanage, although his mom was still alive. He, as a young man, migrated to the United States, kicked around doing a bunch of different things. He was a Confederate soldier for a while. Um, Eventually got into the newspaper business and started working for the New York Herald in the 1850s. And at that time, the Herald was uh, fantastically popular. It was probably the most um, influential newspaper in the United States. And it was run by a guy named James Gordon Bennett, who is was a um, you know, something between Donald Trump and Rupert Murdoch, I think, in the 19th century. a guy who was uh, incredibly successful, but ruthless in how he pursued stories and who came up with the idea that the best way to cover the news was to generate news. So Stanley started working for him and he became a war correspondent. He he did stories uh, from all over the world. And um, so Stanley got the idea that, you know, there was this there was this missionary, David Livingston, who had been working in um, southern Africa for many years and uh, trying to convert people to Christianity and had gone missing. Uh, The reports coming out of Africa, the the reports from David uh, Livingston just stopped. And so um, together they figured out a way like let's let's send um let's let's send stanley in looking for him and so Liv- uh, so stanley is the guy who actually finds livingston in the uh, in the uh, early 1860s and uh that turns him into this fab fabulously uh, well-known explorer it became a news story all over the world um especially since the herald had such reach as a newspaper but i think th- Going back to your question, Stanley, although he had achieved an enormous amount of fame by the time he was in his uh, 40s, he was an incredibly insecure guy. Um, He because of his background, um, he he was actually Stanley was kind of a a pen name for him. Um, He. He always felt insecure, especially as he kind of moved up higher through the the various social classes, that um, he was looked down upon by British people of peerage. He was looked down upon by American people of wealth. And so he was very thin skinned and um, suspicious of a lot of people. Uh, He was very lonely man through large Portions of his life, and uh, spent a lot of time embellishing his own record. I think to kind of make up for his insecurities. So he's a he's a complicated guy. Yeah.
1: Okay. Now you talk in chapter three about this um quest, right, that Stanley um goes on to find Livingston. And he eventually finds Livingston. And um listeners may be familiar with the famous, perhaps apocryphal, who knows, um quote, Dr. Livingston, I presume, right? Right. They meet and they go traveling together. Um now as they're traveling together, they're visited by a man named Mukamba, the ruler of the Uzige. And Mukamba tells them that a white race lives North of Lake Tanganyika in the lands west of Lake Victoria.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, um, soon after in the story, Stanley actually reports, um, and then he writes about as well, having seen this race of white Africans, the Gambara Garans. I love saying mm-hmm. that Gambara <laughs> Garans. <laughs> okay. So, this is actually, I mean, this is at the heart of the story, or this is um, one of the um, focal points of this story. Stanley claims to have seen these white Africans, the Gambara Garans. So, we need to talk about this. So, let's actually kind of go there. What happened, um, basically? Um, what, what's going on? What does he claim to have seen? And why does this take off so broadly and so widely, um, really worldwide, in terms of um, kind of excitement over this and interest in this?
0: So Stanley, after he finds Livingston, comes back to the United States, and uh, this was such a spectacular success for the New York Herald that immediately – James Gordon Bennett is trying to figure out a way to get Stanley back in the field and so he could generate more money for his newspaper. And the biggest issue at the time dealing with Africa, at least, was the discovery of the source of the Nile. This is something that had been of interest to people for 2000 years. I mean, we have reports, you know, that. Also kind of perhaps apocryphal that Julius Caesar uh, thought this was the most interesting question. Where does the Nile begin? And in the 1850s and 1860s, a number of explorers, particularly British explorers, had spent a lot of time in the lakes region of of East Africa, what would, we would now call the Rift Valley. Looking at various lakes, trying to identify the kind of network, the circulatory system of this, uh, these, the lakes region to try to figure out where the lakes began. And so in 1874, Stanley leaves uh, for Africa a second time, this time trying to essentially f- figure out this mystery of geography and he makes it to lake victoria uh he does a uh he he goes all the way around the perimeter of of victoria he meets a very powerful king king mutessa and it was it's with mutessa's essentially mutessa gives him a an army of two thousand men to travel further west in search of other lakes and it's at this point that Stanley notices that some of the people in this massive army of King Mutesa, who's the king of Buganda, um, are very, very light skinned. They don't look like the other Africans, the other East Africans in this group. And um, he asks he asks them where they came from. They're very uncommunicative with him. So he asks some of the African generals and they say that these people are. As you said, from Gambaragara, which is a region in the west where there 's a very, very high mountain with um, snow on the top, and that the people of gambaragara who are extremely light skinned live on this mountain um, and they um, they raise cows and they eat bananas and drink milk and If anyone comes to uh, threaten them, they go to the top of this mountain where there 's this crater lake, and they live so it's this kind of really uh, kind of, uh, it just has the ring of myth about it. So Stanley uh, doesn't take it entirely seriously, but as they head west, west, sure enough, on the horizon he sees this massive mountain that no one's ever seen that's capped in snow, and he gets to within about 20 miles of it. And so, in a sense, pieces of this story start to come together for him, and it You can see from his writings that it becomes more and more of a preoccupation. He goes to East Africa with this kind of geographical mystery, but he ends leaving the continent with a kind of anthropological mystery. Who are these people? How did they get on the mountain? Is the story really true? And how do I get back there to figure it out? Mm
1: -hmm thank you. Dun, dun, dun. So meanwhile, like Stanley's reports of this white tribe of Africans is one of the reasons that this is um, being taken up. And this is um, sort of, so many people have such interest in this, is that it articulates with a broader interest in the genealogy of human races that was ultimately based in a biblical context. Um, This is really, really important. Now here, We need to get into who Ham is and what he has to do with all of this. All right, so Ham, just super brief, quick, and dirty, and you can um, flesh this out um, if you want to. Ham is one of the sons of Noah. Long story short, in a um, in a chapter that fleshes this out um, in, in great detail, uh, chapter 5, The Curse of Ham, um, he gets cursed, okay? And he becomes associated with blackness and with slavery. And The Curse of Ham provides biblical justifications for slavery and for black slavery in particular for many, many years. Now, this becomes really, really important because really um, early on in the book, you described the book as a biography of an idea and that idea is the life story of the hamitic hypothesis from ham okay mm-hmm. so michael i'm going to hit this back to you what is the hamitic hypothesis and what does it have to do with the possibility of a sort of white tribe of africans in gambara gara
0: mm. so the the, I guess the easiest way to kind of uh, to to dive into this was really, if you go back to the 1600s and 1700s, it's a period of time when Europeans are coming into contact with people all over the world. Yet it's also uh, a time that's very, very influenced by the Judeo-Christian scriptures, the Bible and the history of uh, Genesis and Exodus really become the framework. And then this goes back actually um, long before that really to the to the early Middle Ages becomes a framework for trying to understand anthropology. So, for example, if you run into people who don't look like you, then how do you explain their difference? And for Christians, and I should say this isn't just for Christians, it's for Jews and Muslims as well in the Mediterranean region. Um, The the scriptures become a way of trying to identify where they where people came from. Now, uh, uh, most people believed that um, all human beings of whatever uh, you know color and creed were from a common descent, ultimately from Adam and Eve. But most people in the Middle Ages didn't really bother much with trying to trace a lineage all the way back to Adam and Eve, because in Genesis uh, nine, Genesis eight, and Genesis nine, the world is Destroyed in a flood, and the only survivors from that flood, the only human survivors, are Noah and his three sons and their families. So, for people in the Middle Ages and and later centuries who are trying to figure out, well, how are we connected to these people we keep running into? Um, they look to the story of Noah, not to Adam and Eve, and uh, in particular, the story of Ham becomes very interesting. First of all, because there are three sons. Um it it correlated well with what was known by Europeans um of the rest of the world, which was that there were three major continents. And so um they liked the kind of symmetry and correlation between three suns and three continents. So you start seeing on maps um each of the suns is essentially given a continent as to be the forefather of the people of that continent. And Ham was usually identified with Africa. Um not exclusively identified with Africa. There were many people who saw Ham as being, uh, let's say the, the father, the forefather of the people of Asia. But in any event, um, in the in the 1500s, as the Atlantic slave trade begins to uh, catch fire, people looked at the story of Genesis and said, you know, the interesting thing about Ham is that he's actually cursed by his father. Um, And and within the story, uh, Noah, having, you know, successfully uh, navigated through the waters of the flood, uh, lands on Mount Ararat, he uh, starts a vineyard, um, drinks either uh, knowingly or unknowingly. The grape juice from this vineyard and promptly gets drunk and this, uh, ends up passed out naked in his tent and Ham is the one who finds him. Um, Ham immediately reports this to his brothers his brothers come to uh, clothe their father, they clothe their father in a cloak without looking at them yeah, so they
1: like, they like approach him backwards or something right so, yes. so like he he goes in and he's like dude dad's naked I mean like basically And he the other two sons are like oh no we can't look at dad naked and they clothe him. And then, like, Dad wakes up and he's like, "You're cursed." Don't That's right. <laughs> That's right. Basically, right.
0: You know, it's just a s- story that happens to every son and right. their father. Um, who
1: hasn't experienced this? I'm sure. Th- right.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so, so, so Ham tells his brothers they clothe their father without looking at him. Noah wakes up and immediately curses ham now this is very strange why would he actually says cursed be you ham and and your son canaan um, may you forever be the slaves of your brothers so uh why is he cursing uh you know maybe he's hung over he's just in a really bad mood i don't know but but what what seems to be the case at least this is what a lot of uh kind of biblical exegesis thinks is that this story of the curse of Ham really derives from a much earlier story, the fragments of which we don't really understand culturally, so um it could be that there was a prohibition against nakedness that to see a parent figure naked is to, to in a sense emasculate them um there's There's all kinds of theories about why, but in in the end, Ham and his son Canaan are cursed by Noah, and that's that's actually. All it says. There's nothing in Genesis that talks about race. There's nothing that talks about slavery. But for later generations that were using the Bible as a kind of um, map of global anthropology, they looked at this story and said, oh, this must be the Africans. That's why they're black. They've been cursed with blackness. And then in the 1500s, and clearly they were cursed with slavery as well. So it became a kind of justification for many Europeans uh, for their treatment of Africans after about the year 1500.
1: So as we move through this story, this layer of biblical um, kind of or this kind of uh, biblical reference as a source of evidence or a source of engagement gets um, fleshed out by increasing other kinds of evidence that start coming into this story. One of them is linguistic evidence. And this brings us to a really fascinating guy um, who gives his at least nickname to Chapter 6, Oriental Jones. And this is British polymath William Jones, who brings the study of language into play in trying to understand ancient history. Now, he goes to India and eventually becomes interested in Sanskrit, and he becomes convinced that Sanskrit is going to help unlock a common heritage between the people of India, Greece, and Egypt. Now, this becomes important as we look at the development of this Hamitic hypothesis, because his ideas are going to help reframe um, the Hamitic family as a source of progress rather than degradation, Mm -hmm. the origin of empires. So for you, um, what are you most interested in when you think about William Jones and his study of language?
0: I guess the thing that I find most interesting about Jones, and this also goes for a couple of chapters after that with other people, is that they exist in, you know, they're, they're 18th century scholars who, in a sense, they look at the way that Europeans have understood history as being attached very, very closely to biblical history. And they exist at a time when it's it's encouraged, in fact, to say, well, are there other sources? What else is there? And so in the case of Jones, Jones is a great – Great um, lover of language. And in fact, the languages he loves most are the dead languages, the languages that are no longer spoken uh, Persian or um, uh, Latin or Sanskrit. And his goal in understanding these languages is not just, I mean, part of it is that he just finds them beautiful. And one of his favorite things to do to translate in these languages is actually poetry. So he's kind of enraptured by the process of uh, kind of understanding these early cultures through their language. But Because he's read so much and because he's able to look at it uh, synthetically and from a kind of meta level, he starts seeing similarities between languages. And as he does this, he really comes up with this kind of root idea of Indo-European languages, the idea that um, Sanskrit, which he learns when he's in India uh, in the 1770s, is connected structurally with other ancient languages like Persian, Latin, ancient Greek, perhaps even Gaelic. And from this, he believes that, well, these must have been daughter languages of the original language. And because he's a religious guy and still influenced by the this kind of scriptural story of history, he associates this with Noah and, the, and his... <laughs> three sons so he kind of graphs what we would call um, historical philology well that's what it was called at the time or today we would call it linguistics he kind of attaches this very kind of uh, esoteric and academic field with biblical history he doesn't try to use one against the other he tries to use one to augment the other um, but in, in in so doing uh, kind of refreshes the idea of the Hamitic hypothesis
1: great. Now, in addition to linguistics, we also see in this part of the book, physical anthropology kind of coming into the story. And there's all kinds of ways that this happens, and we'll just kind of barely touch on them. So um, as we move forward into the story, we see the concept and the term Caucasian coming into the conversation first um, as a kind of place and then as a way to talk about race. And we see people working with skulls and mummies um, as a way to think about um, and provide explanatory tools for arguing for a particular ways of thinking about human origins. Now, in the middle of the 19th century, support for this Hamitic hypothesis began Begins to wane, but it's then, as you show here in chapter eight and then onward, rescued, transformed, and then championed by scientists. Now, there's Mm -hmm. new evidence for this hypothesis that comes out of the study of human skulls, and long story short, it um, sort of gives flesh to this idea of the Hamite as a Caucasian invader in Africa. Okay. So we start having um, the development of this idea of a Caucasian or white invader or conqueror um, from outside of Africa that comes into Africa. And this becomes really important for all kinds of reasons. One of the ways this plays out is in this, the kind of discovery and study of something called the Great Zimbabwe. Mm. All right. So this is interesting um, and important um, in part because we're going to come back to it um, in the second part of the book. But for you, what's interesting for us um, to know about what you are most interested in in terms of this idea and object, the great Zimbabwe? It's not Mm. a magician. It's not (laughs) somebody. I think of Johnny Carson, right? Like kind of sitting in the great Zimbabwe. It's (laughs) not that. So what is it, Michael, and why is it important?
0: So, Great Zimbabwe is the largest uh, structure, that uh, largest ancient ancient structure in Africa south south of of the pyramids. So, if the pyramids are the kind of largest uh, human structure um, in the entire continent, Great Zimbabwe is a close second. Um, it's what it is is basically um, the site of a city in Zimbabwe itself, built by the in the 1400s, um, the structures of Zim- uh, Great Zimbabwe are uh, most of what you see are granite courses, walls intricately laid granite course walls, some that are 30 feet high and um, you know 20 feet thick at some points, and this. A city winds through this valley um, as well as on the hilltops around it. And um, it was something that was, it had been since the, really since the 1500s when the Portuguese began um, moving down the course of Africa on their expeditions in search of a route to Asia, they had heard reports of a city in the interior, an incredibly fabulous city. And the uh, Portuguese seeing th- this also through through the lens of their own Judeo-Christian um, background uh, associated with King with King Solomon. Oh, perhaps this was uh, the gold mines of King Solomon, and perhaps this was his city. Um, and so, ultimately, in the in the 1860s, this city is rediscovered by a German anthropologist by a guy named Karl Moch. And Mohr, um, when he sees the city, immediately associates it with King Solomon, um, somebody who is not of African descent and so from really from that point onward great zimbabwe even though it's literally 2000 miles actually more than that um from from the middle east uh and it's really in the the southern you know africa is seen as something that could not have been created by africa Africans. Africans could not have been, with, within the thinking of the time, um, were not sophisticated enough to build such fabulously complicated and beautiful structures. So Zimbabwe, this amazing site, is essentially taken uh, from uh, the culture of Africa and implanted as something that was of Mediter- Mediterranean heritage or European heritage even. Um, and that fit. So so I guess to kind of back up a little bit, what you begin to see is You have this ancient biblical story of migrations out of the Middle East or let's say Central Asia uh, into Africa and other parts of the world. That was where the origin of the human species came from as told through Genesis and now in the middle of the 1800s you have these other branches that begin to essentially affirm parts of that story with Jones talking about linguistics and the rise of Indo-European language and now with these stories of, of, of archaeology which show these ancient ruins that within the minds of people at the time could not have been built by indigenous peoples. And so, therefore, are evidence of a white migration in the ancient past.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, there's also another thread of evidence that comes into this story here in the first part of the book, and we won't have time to talk at much length about it, but I just want to mention it for listeners. Um, We actually come back to this figure of King Mutesa that you mentioned a little bit earlier. And there's a really interesting account here about the way that he actually knew about Ham, right, before coming into contact with with the protagonist of our story, or at least our early story, Stanley. And one of the reasons for that is that there's this um, uh, there's this Johnny Appleseed, as you call him, a Bahamutic <laughs> hypothesis in East Africa. And there are stories that begin circulating even before Stanley gets there about convergences between um, kind of kingship stories of Buganda and the story of Ham. They link um, a figure called Kintu, the original man who had arrived in the lakes region from the north to Ham. There's all kinds of ways in which this happens. And I mention it here in particular because this adds another um kind of evidence to the story. And this is the evidence of oral traditions of African Mm -hmm. societies. And so there's a really interesting part of the story that takes those um, seriously as well as part of the narrative of kind of what gets us from the beginning to the end of the story. Mm -hmm. Did you want to add?
0: Sure. Absolutely. Um, So, The 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 hardest thing for me to do in this book, it really was the hardest, was to explain this transition that the Hamitic hypothesis makes uh, in the the later part of the 19th century, from going to a story which explains why uh, where Africans came from, right, that they are the essentially the progeny of Ham, and cursed with blackness, to this idea of Hamites as actually being white invaders of Africa. Uh, There's a flip that happens in the 1840s and 1850s it's a little bit complicated but basically what it is is there's a group of scientists uh, and what we would call anthropologists who believe that this uh, that the various races of the human species are not um, related to each other, that they were formed independently. And this is called polygenism. And so the way that some people try to explain the story of the Bible, uh, which would, would somehow allow for this to, to work, because the Bible makes it seem like we're all the, essentially the children of Adam and Eve. And the only way to make sense of this was for these individuals to say, oh, well, the things that you're reading in Genesis are true, but they only relate to the history of europeans that essentially the story of the bible is the story of white people Um, and it was that flip that um, suddenly transforms this idea of hamites as black into hamites as these white invaders from other parts of the world that come rolling into africa at some point in the ancient past and conquer or intermarry with people there and so it's at this moment that this this transition is happening, that explorers are beginning to read this literature, this new racial literature of white invasions. Uh, In particular, John Speak, who, as you mentioned, is this kind of Johnny Appleseed of the Hamitic hypothesis. And as he's moving through the lakes region trying to find the source of the Nile, he's looking at Africans that he's encountering, and he's saying, yep, that guy is definitely white, or is somehow the uh, the uh, the offspring of people of white invaders from the ancient past, and he attaches. Whiteness, not to all Africans that he encounters, but to the royal clans that he encounters. So when he's with a ro- royalty of a particular area, he comments a great deal on their high cheekbones and their long noses and how they were the descendants of, of the, the Hamites. Um, and so Mutessa is one of the people who he essentially points to and says, um, "You're one of this royal clan of white people." So the story of Ham was actually. Related related. Related to to Mutessa through his encounters with earlier explorers, and perhaps even as early as uh, Muslim or Arab. Merchants who had moved into the interior even before the Europeans arrived in the 1840s. So these stories of, you know, essentially like uh, invaders from other places and the story of Ham and his brothers were beginning to be known to East Africans even before Stanley arrives. And when Stanley arrives, that's that's this moment when, as you put it, all of it begins to get put together. It's like now we have evidence from the Bible, from physical anthropology, from linguistics, and, hey, there's oral testimony because these stories of white invaders connect in kind of strange ways to the African origin stories of East Africa, especially around the figure of Kintu, who was seen as the original original man.
1: Now, this um, way of thinking about the Hemetic hypothesis in terms of an invasion is something that's very interestingly developed in the second part of the book. So there are a number of chapters that look at this in detail, in particular, um, in the context in chapter 13 of the rise of what's called the Aryan invasion theory. And we're going to come back to that um, and the sort of consequences of that in a moment. We also um, see the development of um, this moment of uh, with the blonde Eskimos, right? We started our conversation with the blonde Eskimos in chapter 14 really takes us into that and not just Filmer um, Stephenson's encounter with these blonde Eskimos in the Canadian Arctic but also the ways that that encounter reverberated with um, the encounters of others who also claimed to have found white races including um, white Indians in Panama, etc, etc. Mm-hmm. The story gets um, really interesting for me in, in other ways when we start to look at the kind of fiction that, um, other, I mean, we can think about fictions just as sort of created things in the context of this whole story, but adventure fiction that comes into the story in chapter 15 and 16. So we go back to King Solomon and specifically we go to a book called King Solomon's Minds in chapter 15. This is H. Ryder Haggard's book of 1885, um, which along with, Two other works, Alan Quatermain and she that Haggard also also wrote, established, um, in the words of the book, a new genre of adventure fiction called Lost Race literature. Now, there's all kinds of amazing things that are happening in this part of the story. Um, you talk about the broader context of Victorian novelists who are writing about lost Europeans and Mediterraneans relatively frequently. Why would that have been? How does this articulate with broader ideas and concerns about human difference um, and ideas thereof? And this takes on really interesting relevance when we get to the next chapter, because it wasn't just a kind of um, broad, wide readership that was reading Haggard's work; it was also people like Sigmund Freud. Right. So let's talk a little bit about Freud, because this is actually a super fascinating part of the story. I was I was really surprised to see this here, um, and it's it's just really interesting. So can you say a little bit about Freud and Jung and what they're doing here in this story, um, here around kind of chapter 16-ish of the narrative? <laughs>
0: Sure. The, um, so H. Ryder Haggard is um, this, uh, it, well, really studying to be a, a lawyer. Um, and he, But he goes to Africa. He was not a very good student. He goes to Africa. He works for the colonial uh, administration in the Transvaal. He encounters a lot of these stories. Um, he learns, for example, about the discovery or rediscovery of Great Zimbabwe and also about the Hamitic hypothesis. And when he comes back to europe to uh begin a a life as a jurist he decides you know i'm actually going to give it a go as a a novelist first and try to write uh, novels and he he, originally he writes a a couple of kind of serious uh high fiction novels that really don't go anywhere and then um he's uh he's really kind of uh fascinated with the story of dr jackal and mr hyde as well as uh treasure island and uh says you know i'm going to give give it a go to write adventure uh, literature and so he sets up a story um, King Solomon's mind on the rediscovery of, uh, of a great Zimbabwe like place where there's a um, uh, a a culture which uh it comes from some place outside of Africa and they're fabulously wealthy minds there's a, a witch character and this story goes uh, it's spectacularly successful i mean it's like the harry potter of you know the 1880s uh, and it brings him uh incredible you know wealth as well as a reputation and Haggard is a guy who um you know once this thing kind of uh, explodes he, he thinks he's figured out the formula, which is just to write as fast as he possibly can. He tries to edit almost nothing that he writes and his stories show that kind of haste. I mean, they're not, um, they're not, he, he definitely needed a better editor than he had. Um, but at the same time, because Haggard's rolling through this stuff so quickly, in a way it almost becomes a kind of, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I almost, I almost, tend to think that Haggard, writing so quickly, doesn't edit himself. Maybe stuff that he should have edited. In other words, he gets to these really kind of dark places. The, the European protagonists who go into Africa and find lost races um, end up being really transformed by their experience. There are these, these kind of atavistic things that happen to the Europeans that go to Africa. They they start becoming savage. They are um, uh, characters within these uh, Especially the figure of Xi, for example, who's a, um, essentially a, a white. Persian princess with supernatural powers who is um who runs this colony in the heart of Africa and in this place there are all of these crazy things that happen necrophilia cannibalism homosexuality you know at the, which at the time was seen as you know akin to that stuff and so all of these things were um seen as very titillating by Victorian audiences but they were also and and I should say what was titillating about them was not merely this description of essentially forbidden acts or forbidden behaviors, but it was forbidden at behaviors that was attached to people who are racially white. And this was not lost on the first generation of psychoanalysts. So Freud, for example, was a big reader of Haggard. In fact, he prescribed Haggard to his patients who he felt had repressed certain memories that they needed to get in touch with. And in fact, this idea of uh, essentially lost white tribes in Africa uh, who are somehow connecting to this deeper, uh, you know, atavistic past or behavior um, connected very well with Freud's own theories of the human psyche. Which he believed were, was a kind of onion, uh, where you had a, a primitive brain, which was overlaid by uh, increasingly more conscious and uh, more sophisticated layers of, of mind. Um, but that this connection between the higher layers and the lower layers, between the id, for example, and the superego, were echoed in this literature by Haggard. And so that's that's really where you see the connection.
1: Mm-hmm. So the story continues to be really, really interesting. And you take us also here in the same chapter into Carl Jung's exploration of Africa and and search of the primitive, right? This is the the Mm -hmm. way the chapter puts it. Um, And you talk about Jung in terms of um, his discovery of quote, the white psyche in the heart of Africa. So there's a really interesting part of the story here. Now, we don't have time to talk about every fascinating thing that's happening in every one of the chapters after this. So I will just briefly touch upon some of the highlights and sort of try to bring us toward something like a conclusion. So soon after this, we have English archaeologist Gertrude Caton Caton, Thompson?
0: Uh, Caton Thompson. Thompson,
1: Gertrude Caton Thompson who comes into this whole Great Zimbabwe thing and is basically like you guys are wrong. Um, These are African in origin and she basically solves the mystery. She drops the mic and this is a devastating blow to the Hamitic hypothesis. We also see, and this is something Thing that um, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about and then we'll sort of move um, forward from here. We see a really disturbing, um, really momentous and, and really important way that the um, kind of Aryan... Theory here, in particular, something called uh, some version of it called Nordic race theory, is Mm -hmm. taken up um, by the Nazis, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, in really disturbing and really damaging ways. And what's happening here um, winds up in the context of post World War II, um, really transforming attitudes toward the Hamitic hypothesis as a result. So we see a real transformation after World War II of attitudes toward the search for lost races, toward this Hamitic hypothesis this is in part because of what's happening during the war um, in terms of Nazi engagements with these ideas. So did you want to kind of briefly speak to what you think is most important about that?
0: Sure. The, I think the thing that I've, I realized in the writing in this book that I didn't realize at the beginning was I knew this was going to be a story that, um, that dealt with the issue of, of race and theories of race in a serious way. I didn't realize at the outset how profoundly expansive this idea of Aryan invasion was decades and decades before, you know, Nazi Germany discovers this in the 1930s. And so really, you know, by the turn of the century, the beginning of the 20th century, you've got people all over the world who are identified as either indigenous or Aryan as Uh, as people of color or people who are Aryan and so the idea of Aryan you know this the Aryan originally meant uh, had a, a linguistic significance. It, it identified somebody as a speaker of an Indo-European language. But by the beginning of the 20th century, it becomes essentially a converted to a racial category, a kind of sister term to the term Caucasian. And so all over the world, you know, from New Zealand and Hawaii to Peru to Panama, you have people identified as Proto-Aryan or uh Hemitic, which was a a kind of synonym for that, and um, in a sense, what happens in the 1930s is this idea of an Aryan invasion gets shifted. So now we have the story. You know, the story that had been told was that well, there was this group of Aryans in central Central Asia who then migrated to other parts of the world, kind of like we see in the Bible, Um, and that they populated Europe and they populated India. And that's why we see uh, examples of similarities between the languages. But then there's this strange reversal of that theory called the Nordic race theory in the early 20th century, which says, no, 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 no. You got it right with the connections, but you got it wrong in terms of place of origin. The place of origin was really Northern Germany or Scandinavia. That's where the white people came from. And then they basically kicked ass over all the other people of the world over the next, you know, the the, the centuries to come. And this was an operating idea for Himmler and the, uh, Ananerbe, his, his research arm. And they went looking for white tribes in Tibet, for example. And, uh, so, and, and, and what's really kind of eerie, and, and you kind of put, I thought, thought you put this well, uh, Carla. It's, it's very disturbing, but there's this strange connection between these ancient maps of racial migration that were kind of put together in the late 1800s and they map very neatly with the Nazi invasion of East uh, of Poland and Eastern Europe and Russia in Operation Barbarossa in the 1940s. I mean, you can almost overlay the maps. I'm not trying to say that, you know, that Hitler was kind of inspired by the Hamitic hypothesis to to invade, but you can see how nicely the two segue for people who, you know, wa- wanted to convince themselves that Nazi racial science was legitimate.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, there's a ton of other material that we can talk about, right, and that we're not going to have a chance to do in detail. There's a whole chapter um, that talks about the discovery of Kennewick Man, this 9,500-year-old skeleton found in Kennewick, Washington, um, that takes us really interestingly into arguments for repatriation and identity. There's also a shout-out and a kind of cameo here by Victor Mayer. So I have to mention that, right, because East Asian Studies, um, it's has- of <laughs> Um, And the chapter 20 also talks about it brings us back to mummies, um, basically, and talks about Victor Mayer's experience with the remains of Church and Man in China um, and the kind of case of the Tarim mummies that Mm. got a lot of press um, uh, fairly recently. And so listeners who are interested in that can find that in chapter 20. But in the epilogue, you take us into your own experience here and you talk about your own trip to explore the question, What did Stanley see in the fall of 1875? Um, Now, this is an extraordinarily powerful, moving part of the story, and it's an epilogue, but in many ways, it's really at the heart, I thought, um, as a reader of what's going on here. So um, as a way, perhaps, to bring us toward our conclusion, can you talk about that experience? Sort of what, for you, was um, important and transformative about that experience in terms of how you look back on and think about the project?
0: I think by the end of the book, um, I felt like the important part of the story for me was tracing the rise and fall of this hypothesis because, um, we know so much about, um, Nazi Germany and we associate the term Aryan so much with that history. And yet, this other racial theory, the Hamitic hypothesis is in far, in fact, much more expansive and longer lived than the short violent years of the Third Reich. And yet it's made a profound influence on the world. And so the book itself uh, is a kind of biography of that idea. But by the end of it, I I was thinking, you know, but I can't, we, we still haven't really answered the question well, what did Stanley see? What did other people see? What did what did Stephenson see when he looked at these people he describes as blonde Eskimos? Or what did Richard Marsh see when he went to Panama and found people he called white Indians? And so I felt like to do justice to the story, I had to offer some kind of Uh, at least speculative answer to that question, what did Stanley see? So I went to Uganda in 2013. And I kind of realized at the outset, um, you know, I don't really think there's a white tribe on the mountain. Um, And I don't really think that the people who Stanley encountered would necessarily be in the regions that uh, he described. So more than anything, I went To see the places he went and to just try to, uh, and I did some research also at the, uh, at um, Macrere University in Kampala. And spoke some to some scholars there, but really it was an attempt to try to think through this question. So I um, I took a bus. I spent some weeks in Kampala, and then I took a bus to Western Uganda, which is um, um, Mount Kambara. Gar is now called Mount Stanley, and it's a, a mountain that uh, uh, sits astride the border of Congo and Uganda. And uh, for eight days, I climbed this mountain with a with a guide, a, a, a Bakongo a man named William. And, uh, he, he took me up this mountain and, uh, you know, I told him about this story of, uh, the white tribe and he kind of laughed at me. He's like, you know, there's no white, no white people on this mountain. (laughs) You're the only, you're the only white guy here. So, um, it was, but I kind of had to, had to climb it and see it. And, uh, it was a, It was a kind of profound experience for me because um, as much as I was, you know, had been planning this trip for years and was eager to do it, it was a very, very hard trip. Um, I felt very alone on the mountain. And, um, you know, William was a fantastic guy, but I just felt very, very isolated. I could feel in a sense, the world of, you know, my family and my neighborhood moving on, uh, you know, without me. And, uh, I felt very homesick at points. And then when I summited this mountain at about 17,000 feet, it was, is very, very difficult. I mean, I thought I was in good shape, but, uh, it was, I just couldn't eat. I couldn't eat anything. And, uh, on my way on the first night after we summited, I had a kidney stone attack. So so I was at about 15,000 feet and uh, we didn't have any, you know, medicine to speak of. And we're six days from, you know, base camp. Uh, and so I I didn't I didn't feel like I was in in any imminent danger of death, but I just felt, wow, I I don't know how I'm going to get down from this. And that profound feeling of uh, isolation, I thought, oh, my God, you know, this is just three weeks in uh, in Africa that I put myself into, you know, and Stanley had to deal with this for three years when he was crossing Africa. And I think uh, to come back to your question One of the things that made me think of was, you know, Stanley was so profoundly lonely that he saw in people similar similarities to people he saw back home. There's a there's a part of his narrative where he says, you know, I, I was walking by a guy and he looked just like Thomas Jefferson. And this other guy I walked by, he reminded me so much of this guy I knew back home. And it just struck me that in those places of pure isolation, we we find we find the familiar we're desperate for the familiar. And I kind of wonder whether in that state of mind, these explorers who are seeking desperately to connect what they see and experience to things that they know, um, saw whiteness. Um, Because, you know, of course, when we talk about people as being white, we're not really talking about a color. We're talking about a whole constellation of of behaviors of physical structures of intonation of language i mean you know it just uh and and i think that these these were tripwires for for these explorers it was almost as if people's faces became a kind of rorschach test you know for these explorers and what they what they most wanted to see was people like them
1: I think that's a beautiful point to um, move us to our conclusion, actually. So, Michael, there's a million billion things that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? It's a very rich book, and we really just kind of skated um, along the surface um, and down the path. But given that, is there anything that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Uh, One,
0: I think there's two things um, that... Uh, I want to talk a little bit about one. The first one is, is that although this story seems so absurd to educated 21st century readers, like really <laughs> what's going on? Um, it's not treated as absurd in other parts of the world. If you go to India, if you go to East Africa, if you go to wet parts of West Africa, even there are many, many groups of people who um, identify their origins as non-indigenous that there are africans who see their origins as mediterranean there are indians who see their origin as from outside of india as essentially aryan from an an earlier invasion and so these stories are alive they're not just some crazy fable that europeans came up with and then put to rest after world war ii they're alive they affect people they are um, implicated in events of mass violence, like the Rwandan genocide. And I think it's important that Western audiences especially realize that there are legacies of racial science that really exist outside of Europe and continue to influence the world. The other point I would say is that as much as these stories seem kind of crazy, this search for identity... um, In the, the, you know, this is really a search for racial identity. But in in many ways, when you look at um, modern day adventurists or um, modern day self styled explorers, there's a sense in which people still believe that they can peel off the the kind of mask of civilization to find some core identity, unalloyed, unbe- you know, beneath it, and while it's now politically inter- incorrect to talk about it in terms of racial identity. And I think many people would feel very uncomfortable in talking about it. In many ways, what we do when we, you know, climb K2 or we um, try to uh, do a traverse of Antarctica or we move through the, uh, you know, through the Amazon basin is very parallel to what Victorian explorers were doing in the late 19th century. Um, We don't call it racial. But um, many of those same kind of quests for identity um, still exist. So I think those are the two reasons where or the two areas in which I think this this story touches the present.
1: Great. Thank you. And now that the story um, is out in book form and congratulations, I think it's um, clear that I love the book. I think it's fabulous. What's next for you? What are you currently inspired by and working on?
0: I am really interested in what happens to this thing we call exploration in the late 20th century and in our own time period. I think um, there's um, exploration really kind of had a meaning for Victorian explorers and you 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 get this feeling that there's this incredible identity crisis in what exploration means is it an, is exploration the summiting of a mountain well uh, no not really is it something like uh if a rover uh crosses uh the the surface of Mars well it's not human It's that so i think the next project we'll be looking at this idea of exploration and focusing in particular on the connections between the human and the machine. Um, you know, I listened, um, uh, when you interviewed Janet for Tessie a few months ago, Carla, which was a terrific interview and, uh, her book "Seeing like a rover was one that, uh, I went out and picked up after I heard the interview and it was I, actually, I, it was very, uh, uh, it, it had a big impact on me because of the way that she uh, describes for those for people who don't know the book. She basically is embedded with a rover team uh, for years as they negotiate where to send these rovers over the, the surface of Mars. And this idea of seeing like a rover is really a kind of exploration of what happens to the human when the human is like receiving its information from uh, an, an entity that doesn't perceive the world the way it does. And what's, what are the kind of hybrid um, results that you see when you're trying to translate from r- robot perception to human perception? And I'm just Completely fascinated by that, and I would love to look at that theme not only as it's articulated let's say in planetary science but also how do how do we do it with in terms of um, um, Satellite information about, like, say, Antarctica, for example, or in environmental studies, which uh, increasingly use machines. So, in a very vague sense, that's uh, I know that's a kind of amorphous answer, but uh, I would love to look at that uh, connection between the human and the machine in exploration.
1: Awesome. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, thanks very much for making the time today, Michael. Congratulations on an awesome book. It was really a pleasure to talk to you about it.
0: Thank you, Carla.
1: You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very, very much for joining us, and we'll catch you next